Hi, it's Leanne of the Remove the Guesswork podcast. Just a quick one before you listen on the episode. I want to make you aware of a a webinar that we're running on Friday the 13th at 2.30pm London UK time. The webinar is called The Corporate Athlete, How to Get Your Teams Ready for the Rigors of Business Life. And in it, we'll be discussing the concept of the corporate athlete how you can prepare your teams by making them more resilient, by promoting well-being, making sure they look after their sleep, their mental health and their energy levels so they can be happier, more productive and generally better human beings, which is great for them and great for your organisation. So the way to register is to go to the show notes and click on the link or search for the Corporate Athlete Body Shot Performance Eventbrite, and that will also find it. So Friday the 13th, 2.30 to 3.30, we hope to see you there and enjoy the show. I'm Leanne Spencer, founder of Body Shop Performance Limited, best-selling author, TEDx speaker, and your host. This is the Remove the Guesswork podcast, the show where I interview influential people in the health, fitness, and well-being space to bring you the latest ideas on how to optimize your mind, body, and well-being. The show is brought to you by my company, Body Shop Performance. We create total solutions to optimize your health by focusing on sleep, mental health, energy, body composition, digestion, and fitness. We work with busy professionals on a one-to-one basis for six or 12 months using the latest science and technology. And BodyShot also work with businesses who want to create a culture of energy, vitality, and performance, and position well-being as a competitive advantage. Find out more at bodyshopperformance.com and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Remove the Guesswork podcast. I'm Leanne Spencer, your host. And this week, I bring you an interview that I was lucky enough to do face-to-face with a previous podcast guest, Alex Sujon Kim Pang. Last time I interviewed him, we did it online because Alex is based in the States. And I interviewed him about his book, Rest. And I'll link to that in the show notes so you can hear that, that episode if you want to go listen to that first. Otherwise, stay with us. In this instance, we're talking about Alex's book, Shorter, which is all about the four-day working week. And the book is Shorter, How Working Less Will Revolutionize the Way Your Company Gets Things Done. I've got a copy. I hadn't actually read it by the time Alex and I met in person last Friday. But we put down this episode. It's a lot longer than normal because I had Alex face-to-face and I wanted to make the most of that time. So I hope you enjoy it. A bit more about Alex. He's the author of four books, Shorter, Rest, The Distraction, Addiction, and One Other. They've been, his work rather has been profiled in the New York Times, the New Yorker, the Financial Times, the Guardian, and lots of other different publications. He speaks all over the world about the four-day week and the future of work and deliberate rest and how that makes people more productive and, and allows their careers to be more sustainable. He also leads workshops and consults with companies and individuals who want to learn how to overperform without overworking. And he's the founder of a consultancy called Strategy and Rest, which is devoted to helping companies and individuals harness the power of rest to shorten their work days while staying focused and productive. He's given talks and led workshops all over the world, from California to Korea to Azerbaijan. And he's also a visiting scholar at Stanford University. So he's a very academic, but also a very experienced guy. And we, we had a really good conversation about the four-day working week, employee engagement and retention and productivity and and ultimately around well-being, which of course is, is pretty much what this podcast is all about. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Everything we talk about, I link to in the show notes, including how you can get hold of Alex, but basically his website is the best place to go, which is askpang.com, askpang.com. That is it. Enjoy the episode with Alex Sujon Kim Pang. Alex, welcome back to the Move the Guesswork podcast. Oh, thanks. It's great. It's great to be back and great to be here in person. Yeah, I do. Well, welcome to London. And as you say, yeah, we're here in person, which is a really nice touch, I think. It's always better to do things face to face if you can. Yeah. So we're here to talk about your new book, which is called Shorter, published on 5th of March by Penguin. I've as you know, for the first time holding the copy. So I haven't actually read this, which is an unusual scenario to be in. However, the author's right here. You can tell me all about (laughs) the ideas contained in the book. So you wrote the book Rest, which Mm -hmm. we interviewed on for a previous episode. And I guess you've had a rest yourself. Mm -hmm. And then you've embarked on the process of writing another book. What was the inception idea, the, the, the first suggestion that you write a book about shorter working weeks, essentially? It grew out of actually doing the press for rest. And when I was on doing radio or or podcasts or other things, 
I almost always got a question along the lines of, okay, so what you're talking about is great if you are you know, a writer or you're someone who's in a lot of control of your time. But what about you know a single mom or a working woman who's a professional? What does she do in order to get more rest? And I had you know I had answers, but the fact that I kept getting this question made me think more about what is it that gets in the way of people who have nine to five jobs or of people who are working in you know, Wall Street or the city or professional services. What are some of the impediments that that they face? That this isn't just a matter of you know not having enough willpower or you know not having the right tips and tricks. And indeed, you know, I think most working women don't need more like life advice from middle-aged guys who are telling them you know, what they should be doing. So I didn't really want to go in that direction, but it made me realize that. Many of the problems that we face in building more rest in our lives are structural rather than personal. Right? This is not merely a question of self-help or life advice. And I realized that the answer to the question, what can working moms do in order to get more rest, it's not just personal routines. What they should have is a working world in which they're not expected to raise children as if they don't work pursue their careers as if they don't have children, do both at exactly the same time, that was a genius move on society's part, and do both to some impossibly high yet vague standard, and finally make them responsible for juggling all of this and responsible if it doesn't work. Mm. You know, what working moms need is not more life advice. What they need are structural changes. Absolutely. Yep. And so that got me looking for those changes or places that were at the places that were making them. And I pretty quickly started finding companies that had sometimes been inspired by rest to shorten their working days, moving to four day weeks, generally, sometimes six hour days, you know, sometimes even five hour days. And the more I dug, the more I realized that these are a group of companies that are in a whole bunch of different industries, ranging from software startups to restaurants to you know, nursing homes and factories. Some of them are very large. They've got several thousand people. Some of them are two-person operations, and they're all over the world, right? Scandinavia, the UK, the US, even Japan and China, sorry, Japan and Korea, two countries whose languages have their own words for working yourself to death. Yeah. And at that point, it seemed to me that I had stumbled on like this global movement that wasn't really aware of itself yet, but was facing the same problems, solving them in similar ways, and seeing similar benefits. So at that point, I realized, you know, I actually have a really interesting story here that deserves to be told. So that's the story. Okay, brilliant. And then you embarked on the book and off you went. Yeah. Okay. So what are some of the key ideas behind the book? Well, I think the biggest idea is that William Gibson has this line about how the future is already here. It's not just evenly distributed. And as a science fiction writer, you know, he's always looking for things that are signals of sort of the next big trend. I think one of the most important lessons I got from this is that the four-day week is already here. It's just buried under a bunch of rubble of misguided cultural assumptions about overwork and bad planning and overly long meetings and other stuff that – other kind of rubble that if we clear away, allow us to do the same work at the same pay in four days rather than five. It is... Sorry to interrupt you, but do do you mean that we currently have the capacity, or do you mean rather that we fill the capacity we have as opposed to working more productively because we couldn't go home a day early because of the structure of of how work is, you know, an office job Mm -hmm. is nine to five, roughly, five days a week. 
So if we've got a day to do something, we'll take a day to do it. Is that what you're saying? Whereas if there was the permission to reduce that to four-fifths of a day or four mm-hmm. days out of five, we could get that done in most, most instances. Is that is that what you're saying? Or by misinterpreting? No, I mean, part of it certainly is a sort of Parkinson's law type thing that, you know, work expands to fill the time, yeah. you know, order of time available. Yeah. Part of it also, though, is that we live in a world in which we take for granted all kinds of things about how we work, uh, starting with the work week generally is five days long. And, you know, that for most of us, that overwork is both inevitable and kind of enviable, right? Mm. Sort of, and that some of these things are even encoded in software. Meetings are an hour long in lots of places, mainly because about 25 years ago, a couple software engineers in Redmond, Washington, decided to make the default length of meetings in calendar programs an hour. And everyone has simply picked up on this. And so one of the big things that the companies I talk about in Shorter are doing is challenging some of these assumptions about work and overwork, but also kind of recognizing that these norms about how we spend our time, about how we work, you know, they're not kind of hard and fast structures, it turns out. They're things that we can break down and put together in better and more effective ways. Mm -hmm. And that's really what they're doing. Mm. Okay. Let's pick up on a few things you've said just there. And meetings I definitely want to come back to (laughs) in the whole context of making them shorter. Overwork, I think we have inadvertently made it our norm in many instances. Mm -hmm. I think it can be worn as a badge of honor. We call people, oh, she's a Trojan. She's always putting the hours in. But actually, my thoughts on on overworking, I've had quite a few thoughts about this recently. I don't think it's much different to abusing your mind and body in other ways, Mm -hmm. like drinking excessively, under-eating, over-eating, under-exercising. I think overworking should be seen as a form of of self-abuse in some ways. Mm -hmm. But I don't know, maybe that's a bit drastic. What do you think? No, I don't think it's drastic at all. There's a, a new book by a Stanford business school professor named Jeffrey Pfeffer called Dying for a Paycheck. And he looks at the various costs of overwork for people, for organizations, for you know society as a whole, with things like chronic stress, heart disease, etc. And what he finds is that overwork is as bad a public health problem as smoking. Mm. It's as it affects as many people And both the short-term and the long-term impacts on people's health and happiness are just as great. Mm. And further, it's the case that for at least some people, overwork has somewhat the same kind of properties as things like substance abuse, right? That, you know, in a way, there is a kind of social or peer pressure element to them. Some of us get into these the habit of overwork, partly because there's you know other stuff missing in our lives, mm. or because it provides a certain kind of an adrenaline rush or charge, at least at first, mm. and then less so. And you know you got to work longer hours in order to sort of you know yeah. feel that same Classic rush. Patterns of addiction, precisely putting your own needs at the bottom of the pile, and that mm-hmm. of sating the desire yeah. ahead of that. And, you know, the long-term health impacts are, they're not necessarily as dramatic, maybe not as visible, but Mm. they can be just as enduring. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Okay. I guess we'll come back to that at some point. But you were talking more about the ideas within the book. Mm -hmm. Come back to meetings. Okay. What's the the kind of the overriding idea throughout? Is it around shortening the work week? Mm -hmm. So the companies that are doing this are following a couple rules. One is they don't cut salaries, right? It's not about saving money. So everyone's salary stays the same. They are also trying to maintain the same levels of productivity, which of course means different things in different companies, right? If you are a call center, for example, people are trying to make a certain amount of money every month or a certain number of calls. If you're a creative agency, it's really more about making sure you hit your deadlines and you deliver things to sort of to clients. But however you measure productivity, you want productivity to stay the same. So in essence, the challenge is figuring out how to do five days worth of work in four days. Now, 
there's research that shows that in offices, most of us, thanks to a combination of poorly run meetings, technology distractions, multitasking, lose about two hours of productive work time every day. Wow. So two hours per employee. Per employee every day. (laughs) So if you can just get a handle on those three things, you go a long way to being able to to cut the amount of time that people are in the office by, you know, 20 or 25% without having to dramatically change anything else in the way in the way that you work. Mm. Those are sort of dramatic changes enough. A lot of places start with meetings partly because they're an easy win, right? No one no one really loves meetings. In most places meetings aren't very well run. You get too many people in them or they don't always have really clear agendas or mm. very clear outcomes. And so if you can make them sort of smaller and sharper and more pointed. Think more about who really needs to be in the room, plan out your agenda beforehand, and also change the default length of a meeting from an hour to, let's say, 20 minutes, mm. so that there isn't you know, five or 10 minutes where two people are there and everyone else is drifting in, and then you talk about football for a little bit or what you did on the weekends, and then you do some work, and then you've got you know, another 10 minutes, and people just kind of hang out and check their emails. Yeah. You stop doing that, you know, firm start times, firm end times, but the meeting itself is a lot shorter and you have particular things that you do and you do your best to get through them. I know there's even one company, a design firm here in London that has reorganized its office a little bit so that it's got some cool chairs and couches for when clients come over. And then it's got this uncomfortable set of chairs and tables for their own internal meetings because they don't want the meetings to go that yeah. long, and so this is a way of reinforcing that. So even better yet is how people stand up. Yes, exactly. Because Standing it's only meetings so long, you'll hike from one hip to the other. Right before you like, let's get to the business. Standing meetings are popular. Walking meetings are another good thing. Yep. If you know, if you're in a place where you can you can walk pleasantly. So you know, the other good thing about this is that it shows people that. You know, there's this enduring thing that no one likes that we can actually change. And it kind of sets the stage for asking, all right, what else in how we work can we change? So that's a powerful thing. And finally, because it's social, it means that, you know, you're saving everyone's time. You know, if you've got 10 people who used to be in a one hour meeting, you know, that's 10 person hours right there. That's a non-trivial amount of time multiplied by the number of, you know, the number of meetings per week. That's actually a substantial amount of productivity that just kind of disappears into the ether normally. So for all of those reasons, as a way of carving out more time as, you know, an early win that shows that you can make these changes and that there is this important social dimension to these improvements, meetings are a great thing. The next couple things that companies do are, number one, think more carefully about how they use technologies so that they are less distracting and do what they were supposed to do, which is help us be more effective and more productive. So you, know, you cut down a lot on the Slack channel usage. Mm. A very popular thing to do is have particular times of day when people check email, usually you know mid-morning and then in the afternoon, yeah. and then the whole rest of the time, make clear that it's okay to not check your inbox, that if you have more important things to do, it's perfectly okay to focus on those. A corollary of that is the third thing, which is to actually redesign the workday so that you set aside times for your most, where everyone can turn off all the notifications and all the distractions, focus on their most important work have other times of day, that's usually in the morning because people you know often have the most energy in the morning and so and you know it's you have more of a feeling of accomplishment if you get some big stuff done early on yeah. so there's a psychological benefit and then you reserve the afternoons for brainstorming stuff for internal meetings or meetings with clients and you also have some some time that's clearly marked as social time because it, when you work in this more focused manner, you know you are often interacting less with people, and 
a lot of us come to the office partly to see other human beings. Mm. That's, you know, something that we like. And by having clear time for socialization, you know, for things like group lunches, which become kind of the default in a lot of these places instead of grabbing a sandwich and eating it at your desk while you're scrolling through Facebook – You have both better work time, more effective work time, and also, it turns out, better social time. Mm. And so it's a win on both of those counts. But just doing those three things, getting meetings under control, getting technology under control, and redesigning the workday so that there are better boundaries between focused work time and other times can do a remarkable amount to make people and make organizations more productive so that you can basically turn off the lights on Thursday afternoon and turn them back on Monday morning. Okay. So I want to talk about companies that are doing that and how they're doing that, which you've alluded to. But just on those three points, I mean, meetings is a really interesting one. I interviewed somebody out in Australia called Tristan White. He runs a company called The Physio Co. So it's Hmm. a big, big team of physios and they help seniors get more active and mobile Mm -hmm. and he's now kind of pivoted if you like still runs tpc as it's called the physio co but he's as well known now for culture as he is for run for being a physio and running a physio based company interesting yeah i would recommend having a look at uh, what he does and i can send you the link to the podcast episode and i'll put it in the show notes for those of you listening in but they have meetings in rooms that are nicely decorated but i think they have rooms with that are furnitureless as well as rooms that have some furniture. Mm-hmm. The rooms are named after maybe one of their seniors who they, who is very popular or a significant Australian figure that's inspiring to the mm-hmm. group of physios and I guess relevant, maybe a sports person. They also have meetings that start. Now, I cannot remember the exact time, but it's a funny time, mm-hmm. like 10.02 or 10.05, not 10 a.m. Mm-hmm. It's 10 a.m. for some people means 10.05, but 10.05 is just a bit more precise it's a bit like when someone gives you a price, it's right. £9.78. You think, oh, they must have come about that by a process of meticulous calculation. <laughs> so I won't, I won't dispute it. It's obviously been thought about. Whereas if you say a tenner, you mm-hmm. start negotiating. So, so very precise start times. They've done some huge amount with, with culture, but a lot of it comes down to meetings. And the meetings, I'm pretty sure they're only 10 or 12 minutes long. They're never longer. Wow. So you have to get straight to business. You have to really think. We talked about pithiness before we went on air. Really pithy arguments or mm-hmm. updates. And they have a one one sheet of paper with the the order of business and any supplementary information, so it saves time in the meetings. Mm-hmm. So our meetings, I think, it, it definitely will come to talk about energy in organisations. I think it kills energy. Yeah, people sit in meetings and they're they're on the BlackBerry or the phone under the desk. And do I need to be in this? Yeah. I know when I worked in in corporate life, you sit there and you. I, I felt like my I was bleeding out. <laughs> Quietly and slowly under yeah. the table and just get me out of this room. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't matter how comfortable it is. In fact, the more comfortable the chairs, I think the worse it is. Mm-hmm. And technology, I think, is, is an interesting one. You know, it's. I was just commenting to someone earlier. I'm, I'm 44. So when I started work 22 years ago, you had these old style Nokia phones, maybe even older than that. And you turned it off before you walked in the office. Mm-hmm. You definitely didn't have it buzzing, dinging and whirring while you were working. Mm-hmm. It was just, right, turn it off, turn it back on at lunch. Whereas now, I don't know how much productivity has been lost for tech, but it's got to be a lot. Yeah. Every time, you know, if our phones were on now, every time, you know, sort of be just, look, I'm looking at you, but my, my head's pulling <laughs> away and I just want to just, I'm just going to check who that is. And Simon Sinek does this brilliant little skit where he said, and by the way, it's not okay to lift your phone, look at it, and then put it face down on the table and smugly say to the person, I'm going to leave that. He said, you've still broken the conversation. <laughs> so that's no better than saying, I'm just going to take that. You know, it just it shouldn't be anywhere on the table unless, of course, it's on flight mode, which I'm presuming we both are. So so tech is an interesting one. And what was the third one? Just remind me. Redesigning the workday. Redesigning the workday. And I've got lots of sort of things I'd like to talk to you about that. You know, practically, how can you redesign a workday? Mm-hmm. One thing that springs to mind, which I haven't seen any companies doing, but maybe you have, is working around chronotypes. Mm-hmm. And I think I might have seen something on your Twitter feed about this, actually. I think it would be an incredible thing to do to say, right, all you morning people, get yourself in for 7 o'clock. We'll have our tea meeting at 10, which is when the PMers can join us. Mm-hmm. So the 7 a.m.s will finish at 4 and the 10, 10 a.m.s will finish at 7 We'll have the team meeting at 10, so everyone's on fire because the morning people are, are there and the PMers haven't had to get up early. But what do you think of that idea? And have you seen anyone doing mm-hmm. that really well? I haven't seen anyone doing that yet. I think that in most places, 
no, they don't hold meetings in the morning. They they use the mornings for the more focused work, you know, partly because the assumption is that most of the office has sort of the highest levels of sort of energy and sort of self-discipline then. Doing this stuff makes enough of a difference now so that I think that places haven't haven't had to yet dive deeper into like sorting out people's chronotypes and thinking more about how we can further refine schedules mm. that way. I think that once we have some company trying to figure out, okay, we've mastered this four-day thing, how can we go to three, that that's the kind of thing you're going to start looking at, mm. right? That you know, right now we are kind of where computers were in business in like 1957, right? You know, when you got it, when most companies got a computer, it wasn't so that you could have real-time visibility into your global supply chain or, you know, know, have access to, you know, or of your knowledge base. It was a game changer because it let you print payroll checks faster. In the late 50s, that was the incredible thing. Mm. And I think that's kind of where we are right now with redesigning the workday, that the simple things are still making a big difference. Mm. And once we push beyond the four-day barrier, you know, we, can, we will start looking at those kinds of things, you know, gathering data about people's sleep patterns, about you know, establishing whether people are you know, larks or owls or bears yeah. or something else, which lots of us actually don't really know. Mm. Better understanding the relationship between working to chronotype and working against chronotype, mm-hmm. right? There's some interesting research about how you know, night owls are, for some kinds of tasks, more creative in the morning because right. yeah, basically psychological inhibition is lower and consequently, if you're doing a creative thing, then your mind is a little bit more likely to engage in kind of associative activity than you know, sort of more rational sorts of activity. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about how you can match match those kinds of biological rises and falls in cognitive ability or focus to particular kinds of work, you can imagine that would get pretty complicated pretty quickly, but that if you can figure out how to do it, you could you could actually get some pretty big wins. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think lots of us individually in our own efforts to become more productive ourselves, discover that, you know what, we don't work equally well on all on all different kinds of work at all, you know, sort of mm-hmm. throughout the day. We go to work with this kind of industrial revolution model where you go in at nine and you go out at you know five or six, and it doesn't really matter and you know, you do the same work the whole time. Or all work is kind of interchangeable throughout the day. Mm. The reality is, of course, that you know everybody has the experience of being kind of low energy after lunch, but we're also you know, most of us are better at deep tasks at some times of day and much better at clearing out our inboxes or doing more social things at other times of day. Unfortunately, most workplaces don't recognize that and try to kind of build the day around around that fact. Mm. And so what these companies are doing is at least taking a first step in that direction. And I think at this stage, the wins are significant enough so that you know it it kind of works well enough for night owls. But at some point, you know, these companies get into a mode of questioning everything. And people get into this experimental mode of, you know, trying this productivity tool and seeing if it works, or trying this other thing, or this piece of groupware. And so at some point, someone's going to start looking at how we can incorporate knowledge of chronotype into refining our design of the workday. Mm-hmm. I think that's just, that's going to happen. Yeah. I, th- I think it should do as so I think it makes a lot of sense to have people work in their energy flows, as it were. Mm-hmm. And it kind of links with something else I want to talk about, which is the whole principle of agile working. I think we've definitely seen work bleed into people's personal lives in, in for good and for bad. Mm-hmm. You know, technology has been a huge driver of that, as have some of the cultural and corporate expectations around work. But it's interesting that in the last 10 years since I've left the city, you know, dress styles have changed quite a bit. Mm-hmm. It's more common to see people casually dressed. 
there's a lot of talk now around well-being, allowing people to bring their full personality or their full selves to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a big change, I think, in the way in which we're working. But I still see there's a, there's a lot of overwork, you know, a lot of, of pressure on people to deliver, right. irrespective of where they are. As well as looking at chronotypes, what are some of the other things that game-changing companies doing this really well are doing to make this four-day working week work? Mm-hmm. One of the important ones is a kind of cultural shift in the way that they think about time and the way that they think about whether you reward overwork or not. And in these companies, all the founders come from Google or McKinsey or Goldman Sachs earlier in their careers or the restaurateurs worked for Gordon Ramsay or in – Michelin-starred restaurants before starting their own Michelin-starred restaurants. Yeah. So they all come from very intense places where long hours were the norm. Yeah. You know, there was a lot of like people throwing things at you, working on weekends, yeah. sort of very stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And as one of them told me, it took him a little while to realize that anyone can sit in a chair for 12 hours a day. Anyone, pretty much anyone can complete a task in 12 hours. The really impressive person is actually the person who can do it in six and do it just as well. And so one of the important things that happens is a reshifting of the way in which you sort of in which you think about overwork, right? Long hours go from being a sign of virtue, a sign of your own commitment, to a sign actually that maybe something is wrong. That something is wrong with the process, that there's a mismatch between like your abilities and the tasks that you've been given. And the answer to is there a problem here should not be, well, just let this person stay late and deal with it. Rather, there should be a change in the way that the system works. Another one is that we think of is that attitudes towards time become more social in the sense that you know, going back to the meetings, an hour-long meeting with 10 people wastes, an, you know, 10 people's time. Mm. And that more generally, my ability to leave at the end of the day Thursday and start my weekend depends not just on my ability to get my stuff done, but on everybody else's ability. And, you know, my ability to focus at work depends on everybody else's ability to respect you know, to respect my time, to respect my attention. Mm-hmm. So there's this sense that, you know, what we normally treat as like very individual things, time management, our attention, our capacity to focus, actually have this really important social dimension to them and kind of organizational dimension to them. So those are shifts that I think are really significant compared to the way these companies worked, you know, worked previously and the way that other companies in their industries work. The final thing I think is that they are the kind of road to a shorter work week begins at the top with a founder or a charismatic CEO saying, we're going to do this because, you know, it's usually seen as something pretty bold and risky. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of essential to have you know, a champion at the top. Yep. But all the work of figuring out how to make it happen how to shorten meetings, what tasks you can automate, how you can use technology to do important things more productively, how to rejigger the workday, how to move to a four-day schedule if you still need to provide customer service seven days a week. All of that stuff is figured out by employees themselves because no CEO knows everyone's job well enough to tell them how to do it in less time. Most CEOs have never even thought about that question. And of the power of the power to redesign the workplace, to conduct these experiments, to bring new technologies into the workplace kind of devolves down to workers themselves. Mm. You know, in the old you know, the old Marxist formulation, workers seize the means of production mm. and they use it in order to make the company a more, you know, a more productive place so that you know, they can get out of there earlier. So, I mean, these are those are things that, you know, that I'm seeing that drive all kinds of other changes 
no matter what industry you're in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, what a design firm does you know, beyond meetings, multitasking and distractions and redesign the workday, the details of that are pretty different from, let's say, what a financial services firm does. But they're all looking for when they're using new technologies, you know, they're all giving employees the ability to figure out how they can use these tools in ways to, you know, offload or automate tasks that really aren't that important or that high value so that they have more time to focus on the things that really do matter. And, you know, that's one of the universals across virtually all of these across all of these businesses. Yeah. So there's a, a huge element of autonomy, giving people the autonomy. Well, you figure it out. You've got four days to do this in now. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of going through everything that you do in a day and thinking, well, how, how essential is that? How vital is that? Yeah. Uh, does that need to be me? Vital has to be me. Vital doesn't have to be me. Not vital. What is the main driver behind businesses moving to the four-day working week? That's a great question. And across all of these industries in all of these countries, it's driven by a couple things. The early adopters, the early innovators, all are working in industries, first off, where recruitment and retention is an existential challenge. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whether you're a software startup who has to compete with, you know, Google and Facebook for talent, and you can't possibly pay as much as them, if you are a restaurant that is constantly cycling through line cooks and sous chefs because, in the restaurant industry, you're normally working 15-hour days, six days a week, and most people, you know, most people break or they get better jobs. In these industries, recruitment and retention is a gigantic thing. And so companies, first of all, are looking for ways to attract better workers and to keep the good workers that they have. Mm-hmm. A second thing is they really want to deal with issues of burnout and work-life balance. Yeah. You know. Often these are companies that have a high proportion of, you know, working moms or, you know, or working fathers. And so this is a challenge that they live every day. They also want to make the companies more sustainable. Places that succeed not by burning people out and then casting them aside, but rather succeed by sort of cultivating people. And that holds for the founders as well as the employees. Mm. And, you know, lots of these people have a near miss, you know, a health crisis. They nearly burn out. They've got something like this that sends a really clear signal that, you know, no matter how I worked in the past, I've got to make a change. And so it's almost always some combination of those. And it turns out that... In a lot of companies, there are separate initiatives to deal with like the recruitment challenge or the work-life balance challenge or the flexible work thing or the sustainability thing. And the four-day week is actually a great way to solve all of these problems at once, which is, I think, one of the things that makes it more elegant and more powerful. On the issue of burnout, though, is there not a danger? I know this is a popular mm-hmm. refute to the whole four-day working week solution model. Is it not? Is there not a risk that people will simply compress mm-hmm. four days, in, five days into four, mm-hmm. and exasperate? Yeah. Burnout? So it is a risk, but I think that people seem to work pretty hard to manage it, and it's certainly one of the concerns that people have going in. What I see first off is that. When you have the opportunity to redesign your job, you really want to redesign it in ways so that your job doesn't get you know, harder at the end of the day. Yeah. That doesn't mean that you, know, you don't make a trade-off between working more intensively for shorter periods of the day. There's a lot of great evidence that four really focused hours beat 12 distracted hours almost everywhere. Mm-hmm. So people put a fair amount of energy into figuring out, you know, time-consuming tasks that they can outsource or they can automate, which helps reduce their workload somewhat. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is there is there's a clear kind of trade-off here where, yes, you are in essence asking people to work harder during the week, but you're giving them more time off. Mm-hmm. And so what – I hear 
fairly consistently is, yes, I feel like I'm working harder, but I have more time to recover. And I have fewer of those days where five o'clock rolls around. And because you know, I started work on something and then I got a phone call and then I tried to go back to it and then I got some email and then someone came in. And by the end of the day, I just looked back and wondered, what did I do? Yeah. You know, you have fewer of those kinds of days. And I think that there's a big difference in how you feel at the end of the day, having worked hard to accomplish something versus having your energy drained because you've gone in a thousand different directions Mm -hmm. and you don't feel like you've made progress on any particular thing. Mm -hmm. And so I think that even the tiring days are at least slightly more likely to be more rewarding than tiring days under the old system. Yeah. Okay. What you're talking about is a real cultural and systemic change. Mm -hmm. What size of businesses, and and Mm -hmm. name the businesses if you can, are doing this really well, Mm -hmm. or at least have embraced it and are trying to make it work? Right. So they range from, in terms of size, from a two-person restaurant in Palo Alto, California, that has as many Michelin stars as it has employees. Right. So this is one of these destination restaurants that people like, you know, fly from other countries in order to, you know, when they get a reservation yeah. till. Up to a company in Korea called Wuwa Brothers, which has about 2,000 employees, and they're an e-commerce and delivery company. They're sort of Korea's answer to Deliveroo or Uber Eats. Mm-hmm. And, they, you know... The software industry in Korea is like notorious for long hours in a country that's notorious for long hours, but they moved first to a firm 40-hour week and then to 35, and they're now looking at 32. And even as they were cutting hours, the company was growing, they were becoming more profitable, and they're now one of the Korean startup world's unicorns, a company Mm -hmm. that has a valuation in excess of a billion dollars. So... That's, you know, so from two to 2,000 people is, is the answer to sort of what size. And then, you know, I think as for my own personal favorites, there's actually a call center, a telemarketing company in Glasgow called Pursuit Marketing that started doing this a few years ago that has a really interesting culture because, you know, sort of the call center world is one where traditionally there's a lot of job hopping. Mm -hmm. It's very intensive. You know, it's very bonus driven. And so it's not the kind of industry that you would imagine could survive on four days a week. But because it's also an industry where you measure absolutely everything, you know, how productive you are on this call, how Mm -hmm. much money you made this day versus this day, when they reached a point where There were several new players who were moving into the market, who were starting to poach people. They were feeling like they'd gone about as far as they could working traditional ways, and they were looking for something different. They had some data that helped them make choices that led them to a four-day week, right? And they realized, for example, that 90% of people actually hit their sales targets by Thursday. And if you didn't, the odds were almost zero that you were going to get to 100% by Friday. So... You know, it turned out Friday was was sort of a quiet day mm. for most people anyway. And they also had some experiments with flexible work, with working moms. And they realized that, you know, I think as most places sense, but they had data to back it up, that their working moms were just as productive working, you know, three and a half days or working flexible hours as people in the people working five days a week had been. And I think it's easier to imagine the four-day week succeeding in a project-driven creative firm than in a place where you've got daily targets. And you can imagine that the more time you spend on the phone, the more money you make. But it turns out that if you know your business, if you have the data that allows you to dive in and to see what days really are productive, what days there's less activity, you can figure out how to kind of re-engineer things, sometimes just a little bit. You know, give the people who don't make 100% by Thursday a little extra training so that they can do as well as their peers, so that everyone can, you know, can move to four days and the company does every bit as well. They become a destination for, you know, new talent, they become really hard to poach from 
It's a huge Far fewer people want to leave. Yeah. So that's one of my favorites. My other, you know, another one is on the other side of the world. It's a, a Japanese inn, traditional Japanese inn called Jinyu. It's right. outside Tokyo. So, you know, like the tatami mats and the rice, you know, the, like the, you know, the sliding doors and people in kimonos and that stuff. Yeah. So very traditional. It was inherited by someone who had been a fuel cell engineer. So a very technical person and his wife. And when they first got it, everything was like done on pen and paper. There was like one telephone, you know, you needed someone to carry messages from one building to another. And what they did was a simple stuff like automating payroll and computerizing reservations and things, but also gave every person working there a tablet and you know a Bluetooth headset so that communication got easier. You didn't have to have meetings every morning in order to arrange this and that. Mm-hmm. And also looking at the books realized that they could save money by closing three days a week, their three least profitable days, and adding other services on the other days. And so they started things like you know, they improved the catering business and they do, you know, weddings and actually TV shows like shooting there because it's a very picturesque location and it's not far from studios. Mm. And so between all of that, they were able to take this business that was really a few months away from complete financial collapse and turn it around and make it now a model for the whole rest of what is generally a very traditional industry. The other thing that's happened there is that, you know, because one of the owners is an engineer, he started playing around with putting sensors around in the parking lot and an automatic license plate reader so right. that, you know, when when people drive in, there's an alert to get their room ready. And they can be greeted by name when they come out, you know, when they come up the stairs, you can check them in automatically. It makes the whole process much friendlier, much more personal, which in the hospitality industry is like, you know, that's like the gold standard. That's the thing that you always want to be able to do. And they've now taken the software that they developed for doing that sort of thing, and they're now selling it to other inns. So... Moving to a four-day week created enough space for them to actually create a whole second business, which is now starting to transform the whole rest of the Japanese ryokan industry. So, Really interesting. Let's let's bring it back to the well-being of of employees. Yes. We've touched on some of the things that I think are really undervalued or underappreciated aspects of well-being, autonomy. Mm Mm-hmm. Variety. A four-day working week create, creates the possibility of more variety in people's lives. Mm-hmm. You might have a day to volunteer, a day just to get your own stuff done, a day to indulge in hobbies and passions, which is a form of rest. Yes, absolutely. Your, your, your other book. Has anybody measured the impact of a four-day working week on the well-being of employees? Yes. So there are companies that will do this internally, looking at you know, work satisfaction across a variety of measures and the simple stuff like net promoter score or there are tools like office vibe where you answer a whole bunch of questions, I think every day or possibly every week. And so not surprisingly, what you find are measurable and sustainable improvements in people's happiness, both within the office and outside people talk about having more time for hobbies or more time for exercise. Some will get, I know one software developer at a company in in Edinburgh was certified as a personal trainer. And so he now does that sometimes. Mm -hmm. Another person is now a semi-pro football player, you know, not at a very high level, but he loves the game and he gets to pursue that more seriously than he possibly could working in you know a, a regular nine to five five day a week place, you know when you ask people what they do with their time, mostly it is exercise, it's other forms of self care, and it's taking care of others. Mm-hmm. Whether that is kids or parents, whether it's more volunteer stuff, but it's amazing that people don't talk about starting the weekend binge early mm-hmm. or spending a lot more time watching television. 
people tend to gravitate toward doing things that are much better for them than, you know, to be honest, I expected. But they pretty consistently choose things that have, you know, clear benefits for you know, their well-being and their and their mental health. Which says something good about humans, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, I'm all bored into that. What are some of the actionable takeaways for people? So people might fall into one or two categories mm-hmm. listening to this. It could be that they run their own business or they're in a position of influence mm-hmm. where they can make some of these significant cultural changes. Or they may be an employee mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily have the influence. What would be the actionable takeaways for both those those subgroups? So, you know, for people in charge of their businesses, I would say that... If you are someone who has plenty of experience in your industry, right? If you're at a point where you're starting to wonder, is the way we're doing things sustainable for this company or sustainable for me? Mm. Which I think everybody asks themselves at some point. Then that's a good signal that it's worth thinking about how you can make this work for you. You know, the good news is that every company starts doing this because of a combination of like big opportunity, but also some kind of personal crisis. So, you know, if you're at that point, you're absolutely on track. It's definitely not too late. And then I think the next thing is to think about whether, you know, are you in a business that has the sort of rhythm where there actually is some fallow period? You know, there are some industries where Fridays have become pretty casual, mm-hmm. where not necessarily a huge amount of work goes out or comes in. And it may be that if you've got that kind of rhythm, that, you know, you can envision eliminating that day and really not suffering in terms of. <laughs> you know, or of client satisfaction or being able to deliver work or, you know, taking a big hit in productivity. Mm. You know, if you are not, if you are, you know, working, let's say in retail or you're like, you know, actually a garage, there's one garage that does this. So that's why I'm thinking of it. Those are places that may move to shorter shifts for people, but actually expand the time that they're open. So, there's a garage in Sweden that's had people on six hour shifts rather than eight hours for the last 15 or so years. And they actually open at 6 a.m. and they close at 6 p.m., which means that, you know, you can drop your car off and get done in a day what would take, you know, two or three days somewhere else. It's physically smaller (laughs) because people are able to work more intensively with, like, the capital equipment you've got right there. The workers are more productive because – you know, when you're pulling engines and rebuilding transmissions and stuff, that's both cognitively challenging and also pretty physically demanding. Yeah. And so, you know, if you can put the same energy into six hours that you would have to put into eight, you know, you can get substantially more done. And this is a place that on average char- is able to bill something like 40% more per mechanic than the industry average. So, you know, these guys working six hours are substantially more productive per person than people working eight hours. And the garage gets more business because it's open longer. So I think that, you know, that strategy of shortening shifts but lengthening operating time is one that provides a win for a number of companies. And I think the final thing is that, (laughs) you know, it's easy to, to imagine that, your industry can't do it for some particular reason. But, you know, I have been impressed at how many different kinds of companies have made this work, right? You know, as I've said, it's not just creative industries, it's garages. There's a place that does custom steel equipment in Birmingham. You know, they're one of the last survivors of, you know, this once great industry. They actually, yep. they're actually the official makers of Balti Bowls. And, you know, they work a four-day week. So, you know, guys work in metal presses. Yeah, very traditional. You don't get a lot more traditional than that. You don't get a lot more traditional than, you know, a Japanese ryokan. And yet, even in places like that, it turns out that the four-day week is something that is both feasible and profitable. 
And then I think for employees, you know, the reality is that very few of us could like re-engineer, re-engineer our work and you know, just not show up one day a week and not get fired. But you know, I think that there are things that you can certainly learn from the people who are already doing four-day weeks to make your own work more pleasant and more productive. You know, I think that no matter who you are or what kind of industry you work in, doing stuff like, you know, better meeting discipline is going to be good for you. And it's going to be good for your friends. You're good for your coworkers. And then I think that, you know, beginning to make the case to look around at the way that you work now or the way that the place works and keeping a mental list of what changes you think you could make if you had a blank sheet of paper and a four-day schedule. Mm. That's not a bad thing to do because more and more companies are doing this. In the couple months since I finished the book, you know, I talk about more than 100 companies in the book, and I have, I have found another 50 that have started trials. Right. You know, and they include like a car dealership. You know, I mean, this is like the last place I would have imagined going to a four-day week as a car dealership. Yeah. You know, talk about a macho culture where where the more you work, you know, the more you oh, earn. Yeah, and an extra, a real sales-driven culture exactly. as well, where you want to be open selling cars. Right. But I know of a dealership, a Lexus dealership in Maryland in the States, whose salespeople have moved to four-day weeks. And since then, they have had the best sales months they have ever had. Mm. And it's not just that the economy is up. They've clearly become better salespeople. Mm. So even in those kinds of industries, it turns out that you can make this jump. And so I think that if you're working a regular nine-to-five job and you don't have a lot of control over or of how that time works, still doing things like starting to change meetings can make your life better. And I think it may be that it won't be that long before you are in a position of working with your boss and your and your colleagues to figure out how you can actually make a four-day week yeah. work for real. I think as well, just fighting the urge to get involved in competitive presenteeism. Mm-hmm. You know, you may not be able to go down to a four-day week, mm-hmm. but you could perhaps work more efficiently so that you can be out the door by five. And do yeah. not worry about being first out the door yeah. at five. Don't yes. get caught into the... I must leave last, or I can't leave till someone else leaves, because then everyone sat around waiting for someone to move towards their code, <laughs> and then there's a mass exodus. Yeah. Now, there's, um, you know, one of the, the companies in Korea has, has, as one of its rules, leave without saying goodbye. Mm. Because in traditional Korean companies, you know, you say goodbye to the people older than you, you know, right. you say goodbye to your boss. And while it's a polite thing, it's also a way of signaling that, you know, you're out the door. Yeah. And this is in a culture where traditionally you don't leave until the boss leaves and the boss never leaves. Yeah. And consequently, there's this rule that says you really just don't. Go. Ha- yeah, yeah. Just go. Yeah. I like it. So I'll finish on a funny little anecdote. I cannot remember the name of the company and I think it's a Scandinavian firm. But anyway, they have they've got desks that are connected to the, the ceiling on wires. Mm-hmm. And at 6 p.m., the desks, go, they retract into the ceiling and the place becomes a yoga studio. Mm-hmm. So if you're still working, your laptop is going to go up in the air. It's hysterical. But I mean, <laughs> it really exists. I, I can't remember the company, but a simple Google mm-hmm. will find it. Alex, it's been a really interesting conversation. Thank you very much. I think everything we've talked about comes back to something very important to me and, of course, my business and, and to everyone listening, which is well-being. Mm-hmm. And I think game-changing companies will be using well-being as their competitive advantage. So it won't be salary package, it won't be company car, it won't be perks and bonuses or corner offices. It will be how well am I going to be looked after? Mm-hmm. Do I have the option to work a four-day working week? Can I work agilely? And that, what does that really mean? What is the culture like? Is it a presentation culture and so on? So it's been very interesting to explore how it's working in practice and your thoughts on it. The book is called Shorter, How Working Less Will Revolutionise the Way Your Company Gets Things Done, published by Penguin Business out on the 5th of March. I've got a copy in my hand right now, which I'll be taking home to read. Congratulations on the book. Oh. And all the very best with it as well. It's lovely to have you back on the show. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. So Thank you. Interested in finding out what your health IQ is? 
jump on our website, www.bodyshotperformance.com and click on take the test. It'll take you through to a short two to three minute test. And at the end of that, you'll get a scorecard and a free 39 page report based on our six signals, sleep, mental health, energy, body composition, digestion, and fitness. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please think of someone who could really benefit from the content and hit that share button and send it across to them. And of course, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and a review. Thank you very much for listening.